Think about Vacation Bible School, uh, the many children that we can touch their lives, hopefully and prayerfully, we can enrich their lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ, plant seeds that would grow throughout their time on this earth and then prosper for an eternity. Make sure you're doing what you can do to be a part of it. All of us can be prayerful about it and let's be fervent in our prayers. Let's be frequent in our invitations and let's do what we can do to help out and to get kids here and, and to follow up and do everything that we can do and, and give God all the glory for it. A woman tells a story. She said, I was there in Idaho in our little local grocery store, and I was standing there at the new potatoes and the peas. I noticed a little shabbily dressed young man. Oh, he was clean, but you could tell he was poor. About that time, the owner of the grocery store walked over and said to him, Barry, how you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing fine, Mr. Miller. Thank you for asking. He said, how's your mother doing? She's still not doing very well. She struggles a lot in her health. She's down most of the time now. He says, Barry, what are you up to today? He said, I was just admiring these peas. They sure do look good, don't they? He said, could I get you a bag of those? No, no, I don't have anything to pay for them with. I tell you what, you have a shooting marble on you? He reached in his pocket. He said, I sure do. He said, I'll be glad to trade you a bag of those peas for that shooting marble. He said, let me look at that marble first. He looked at it. He said, you know what? That's not my color. I tell you what, I'm going to give you these bag of peas and, and you take them home and whenever you get a chance, do you think you have maybe a red shooting marble? He said, I, I think I do. He said, you bring it back. Just whenever you're passing by. He said, I'll look at it. He said, that's probably the one that I want. And we'll, we'll barter here for these peas. Well, the lady that was shopping for her new potatoes there Miss Miller came over and was helping her, and when Barry left, she said, you know, that's about the sweetest thing I've ever seen. She said, oh, that's my husband. Said, there's three little boys in this town from three different families that their families have gone through such a tough time. Said, every time they come in here, he barters with them. He always sends them home with groceries, and they're always supposed to bring back their next shooting marble, but the thing is, it's never the right color, it's never the right size. It's just always good for another bag of groceries. Time went by, the lady moved away. Then, years later, she was visiting her hometown. She learned that Mr. Miller had passed away. She went by the funeral home to pay her respects. She was visiting there, waiting in line. She saw three young men one in a military uniform, but all three with clean-cut hair, very uh, dignified, gave Miss Miller the sweetest hug, stood and visited with her for a good while. And then Miss Miller's eyes followed them as they walked over to the casket. Each one, in turn, placed their hand upon Mr. Miller's. And then with tears in their eyes, they walked away. And then she spoke to Miss Miller. You know... I've never forgotten that day when I was there in the grocery store and I saw Mr. Miller's kindness to that little boy. And Miss Miller said, you know, those three young men, those were the three young men that he helped until they left home. And he still helps their families. She said, I want to show you something. Walk with me. Walked over to the casket. And Miss Miller lifted... Mr. Miller's hand. And underneath 
was three beautiful, bright red shooting marbles. She said, I would say that Mr. Miller would probably think right now that he was the richest man on earth. When all is said and done, I need to be able to answer this question. Have I helped a child lately? If I can't say yes to that, my life is not worth very much. If I can't help the ones that Jesus Christ would say is the greatest, how mixed up are my priorities? Have I helped a child lately? And in doing so, know that we've done something grand. We've made an investment in the future. Have I helped a child lately? You ever heard the phrase, oh, that child's just caught in the middle? You know, a lot of times that describes divorce situation. I was reading a book this week, and, and that's the way the author described his life. He was writing about marriage, and he was writing about the fact that he remained a bachelor for all these years because he said, as a teenager, I turned against marriage. And he talked about that he didn't think it was his family that would ever do that. He said, I had a lot of friends that their parents divorced, but he said, you could see that coming in their families. But he said, my family, I never could see that coming. And he said, then when it happened during my teenage years, you know, he said, I had to do what all teenagers that go through uh, divorced families have to do. I either had to decide, was I going to choose one or the other? Or was I going to choose to live out of a suitcase for the rest of my childhood? He said, I chose the suitcase, but I never could understand marriage. And so now, I'm a bachelor. We as a society would describe that as a child caught in the middle. This week, I want to ask you, will you help a child get caught in the middle? Caught in the middle of something good? Caught in the middle of a place where they come into a building that's full of, of adults that love them? Come into a building that will be full of a place that's full of the love of Jesus? They'll feel like they're caught in the middle of something that's wonderful, something that's joyful, something that's peaceful, something that has something to offer them that nowhere else in the world has to offer. Will you help a child be caught in the middle? You see, it's not always bad for a child to be caught in the middle. The text that has been read for us this morning shows us a child that was caught in the middle. But first we see some adults that were caught in the middle of confusion. You see, when we go back and we look again at the 18th chapter in verse 1, notice the first three words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, and then notice who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's something about that time that caused the disciples to ask this question. And what they wanted to know was, well, what is it then that you want us to believe about this? In other words, we're confused about the ideology of greatness. We had an understanding of what we thought it was, but now we're coming to the conclusion, Lord, that your understanding of greatness is so much different than our understanding of greatness. But why is it that they said it at this time? Well, maybe we'll never know exactly all the reasons they chose to ask it at this time. But I'd like for you to drop back and scan just a couple of verses with me if you have your Bibles open. Look back at Acts the 16th chapter. In Acts the 16th chapter, and it'll be on page 866 of your pew Bible. In Acts the 16th chapter, look at verse 21. From that time, 
Now see again, we're having something referenced a point in time. At that, or from that time, this is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And do you remember this is the time that Peter stands up, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. He turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What's happening in the life of Peter and the apostles at this point? They have left their homes. They've left all to follow Jesus. And no doubt, they must have thought the earthly, the kingdom was going to be an earthly kingdom. They must have thought that perhaps they were going to have opportunities to be officers in this earthly kingdom. They were going to have some kind of perhaps popularity or prestige of being a part of this earthly kingdom. And now things were changing. Now the one that they thought was the greatest in their kingdom is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be put to death. And Peter rises up as a courageous friend saying, I'll never let that happen to you. And he hears that great one say, you're acting like Satan right now. Get behind me. Wow. That would be a lot to digest. Try to figure out what is happening with this idea of greatness. Look at the 17th chapter now, if you will, verse 22. The 17th chapter, verse 22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be portrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he'll be raised up. Notice this summary. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They're confused and sorrowful. They don't understand what's happening. So you can imagine perhaps when they're by themselves talking, who is going to be the greatest? If Jesus is going to die and He is the leader of this movement, who is going to be the greatest to take His place? Who's going to be the greatest? Does that mean the greatest is always killed? Can you imagine all of the discussion? We need to know then, Lord, what is it to be great by your understanding? And then, instead of saying a word to them, he turns to a child. Look again at verse 2 of the 18th chapter. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Now, are you picturing this scene? They have come up asking who's the greatest. He at first doesn't say anything to them. He brings this child and he sets this child right in the middle of them. Now that alone starts giving an answer, doesn't it? Can you imagine how some of them might have at this point started crossing their arms? Maybe putting a little bit more weight on their heels and thinking to themselves, surely, Surely he's not about to say that a child is the greatest. Jesus, you're not getting the real picture here. We have some legitimate concerns. Who's going to be the greatest? 
we have a movement that has become huge, Jesus. Have you looked around and seen the number of multitudes that are following you? Jesus. We've got things that have to be taken care of. Why? We don't have room for parking anymore. We've run out of classroom space. We're going to have to do something. We're going to have to buy more land. Jesus, do you realize we have missionaries down in El Salvador? We have work that we're part of now in Kentucky that we're so concerned about. We have work that's going to take place and does every day in Ukraine. and And a group is about to go with them. Jesus, do you see all the things that's so busy? We need great people to do this stuff. Who's going to step up and be the great people? Jesus, we're not asking for a cutesy little story here. You're about to die. There are thousands following you. And we don't understand who's going to step up. I think there must have been some kind of mentality like that for Jesus to answer with his first word being assuredly. In other words, he's already brought the child in their midst. They're probably already thinking he's not going to say this child is the greatest. And he begins with the words, assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever challenges, problems, obstacles that you and I face in life, we can rest assured they'll never be so great that we have to leave a childlike humility in order to achieve them. It didn't matter what they thought the challenge at hand was. The only answer was going to be, I need to become more childlike in my humility. Now, he told them two things here, if you look back at verse 3. He says, you're going to have to be converted. You're going to have to become like little children. Now, let's think about this word converted for just a moment. Every other time in the New Testament, it's translated turn. In other words, you know when you're smitten on one cheek, you turn to them the other cheek? The idea of conversion is literally a 180 degree turn. And so these individuals have come to Jesus with one understanding of greatness. And I want you to just imagine, they're walking mentally with one understanding of greatness, and Jesus is literally saying to them, you must turn to another understanding of greatness. Are you going to be willing to be converted? Are you going to be willing to turn from your self-righteous way of thinking and turn to a godly way of thinking? Are you going to be able to turn from pride and to humility? Well, how are we going to do that? He says, become as this little child. Now notice, heaven and hell may be closer than what most of us think. Closer together. I think some of us think that heaven and hell are so far away that someone would have to make drastic changes in their life to change a destination from heaven to hell. You know, the Scriptures doesn't teach that. 
Have you ever noticed in the scriptures how closely the Lord places hell to heaven? According to this passage, what if a person decided, I tell you what, I just don't want to be humbled. I don't want to see the greatness of a child's humility. What did the Lord say here? You'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And he begins that statement by saying, assuredly. In other words, you can know without any doubt, there will be no exception, by no means, there will be no exception, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. How important is it for us to be humble? Well, he lays out the humility of a child, and he says, this is the value system. You've come to me, and he's saying, you've wanted to know who's the greatest. It's those that become like little children. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Jesus isn't saying little children are the greatest. He's saying their humility makes them among the greatest. But any other adult that decides to have a childlike humility is among the greatest also. So let's continue reading here as we look at 4 and 5, and he kind of gives us a test. In other words, we can say, okay, how am I doing in this area of humility? He says in 4, Therefore... Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, verse 4 is no surprise. That's right on target with what he's been saying. He says you have to become like this little child. It always amazes me how much discussion revolves around the fact when people read this, they'll, they'll kind of leave verse 3 oftentimes out there by itself or, or, or take verse 3 and discuss it and, and then leave 4 out by itself. In other words, you'll be in Bible classes sometimes and people will say, what do you think Jesus meant whenever, whenever he's saying become like little children? And people will begin listing all kind of childlike characteristics. And then, well, we don't know exactly what he meant by it. Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, if we don't want to add or take anything away from it, we know exactly what he meant. Because he says clearly in verse 4, what I'm saying to you is I want you to have the humility that a little child has. But then he takes this teaching about who's the greatest, and he says, I want to show you when someone has a childlike heart, what they do in their life. You see, at this point, he's about to kind of make a transition from answering their question to saying, now let's see what it looks like lived out in life. And so in 5, he says, whoever receives that little one receives me. What does it mean to receive a little one? You remember how Jesus, when children were brought on another occasion... You remember how some of his leaders that surrounded him were holding the children back? And Jesus received those children after rebuking those adults. He brought them into his arms and he blessed them. In other words, he prayed for them. There are many ways in which we receive a child. And as this text unfolds, what we're going to see is that it's helping a child grow closer to God is the greatest and most important way to receive a child. Now, the interesting thing is, 
that when we do so, we receive Jesus. You know, we studied the very similar principle last week about when we receive any, or even among the poor, we receive Jesus. Do you see the humility of Jesus in all of this? How Jesus saw those that were dependent as a very wonderful thing? You see, when you and I see ourselves as dependent, we're starting to get a glimpse of what Jesus wants us to see. We can't make it alone. We're not self-sufficient. We need God. We need each other. We're just like a child. We can't make it alone. Now, he shows us here a glimpse of some that aren't doing very well at this. If you look at verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it's better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of a sea. Now we get a picture of one that he's a stumbling block and it's to the one that, that uh, causes these children to sin. Now you see, this is in, in an opposite way of speaking about those that receive little children. You have those that receive little children because of their childlike heart of humility and you have others that in their life, they're turning children away from God. Now, wait a minute. Is it intentional? When an adult becomes an enabler for a youth to sin. So see, now we're talking about young ones that are old enough to be believers. But yet they're also very heavily influenced by adults. How does this happen? Well, in the next three verses, he gives woes. And he talks about the woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offenses come. And then he talks about three parts of the body. And he's saying that if our hands have become a members that are offending, we need to cut off our hand. Or if our feet have become members of offense, we need to cut off a foot. If our eyes have become members of offense, we need to pluck out an eye. You see, he's talking to us individually. I need to remove whatever it is out of my life that's causing myself to sin. Why? Because I can't stop the fact that I have an influence on those around me. And if I can't stop myself from sinning, I can't stop the fact that I'm influencing young and old to also sin. We can't stop that. Well, what if a person says, now think about the three members of the body. The hands is what we do, the feet is where we go, and the eyes is what we see. What if someone says, listen, it's my life, I like what I do. I like where I go, or I like what I see, and I'm not about to stop it. But do you realize that you're pulling others away? Look, I'm not responsible for others, and I don't care about others. And what he say in verse 6? It would be better for him. Now notice that wording. That's almost tricky at first. It'd be better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck. Can you imagine trying to swim with a stone that is probably about the height of an individual? 
tied around their neck. On the screen there, you have a picture of a millstone. You know, there were smaller millstones that, that sometimes were operated by one or two individuals. An individual couldn't even swim out of the bottom of a sea with a smaller millstone hung around his neck. But the language here lends itself to being the huge millstone that a beast would be tied to a pole that would move that millstone. He's saying it would be better for that person. Now I want you to think for just a moment. Why would it be better for that person to go ahead and die in the bottom of a sea? That'd make more sense to us probably at first glance if it said it would be better for the church or it'd be better for the people that they influence. But he didn't say that. He said it'd be better for the one that has the millstone around their neck to go ahead and die. Why is it that it's better for some people to go ahead and die, according to Jesus? You realize on the day of judgment, everything's going to be brought clear. Who is it that has discouraged some of our members that are no longer faithful? You know, when you look back through directories and, and you see people that used to be here and you see young people that grew up, who is it that discouraged them? When you see people that, that they say, you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. Well, who are the hypocrites that discouraged them? Now, that doesn't mean it's going to change that individual's soul that says, I'm turning away from the church because the church has hypocrites. But it does mean that somebody discouraged them. These are the ones Jesus is addressing in this story. Jesus says, let's talk about these people that don't care about other souls. Imagine, if you will, with me, the, the day of judgment. Someone that never chose to stop doing wrong. They never chose to stop walking toward wrong. They never chose to stop seeing wrong. And they remained within the influence of people, including young people, and on the day of judgment, God will reveal all of the lives that stumbled because of that influence. Now we know from Luke, the 16th chapter, even when an individual loses their soul, they don't hope for other people to come with them. So you have this man or this woman that's been a stumbling block that on the day of judgment... Let's say if they would have lived till they were 35 years old. Maybe they only caused 40 people to stumble in those years. What if they would have lived that same life until 70? They might have caused 80 people to stumble. Which would you rather see on judgment? Well, any of us would rather see less souls be condemned. Jesus says it's going to be far better for that person to go ahead and die if they're not going to remove the offenses out of their life. Jesus, help us see who's the greatest. And He pulls in the midst of them a child. And he says, not only is this kind of humility great, but he says, you can have it. 
And also you can receive the children. And also realize that you can also cause children to stumble. You see, really what it boils down to is we look in verse 10, he says, don't despise the little ones. And he says the reason is because they have angels. They're always before the face of the Father. And in verse 11, he speaks of Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to save that which was lost. And he tells a story about 99 sheep, and there's one that is astray. And he relates this parable to a youth falling away. And then he summarizes this paragraph in 14 by saying, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So let's bring this lesson to a close here and see this. The Lord in the last paragraph is saying... Don't despise them. That's interesting to think about whether or not you love or despise children. You know, sometimes it's interesting to me that sometimes parents that have a child that is exactly like them, that's the one they sometimes grow to despise. Or have you ever noticed that if it's not your own child, you can't tolerate things as well? If it's somebody else's child? You know, I know as a dad, it's a lot easier for me to change my child baby's diapers than to change your baby's diapers. You know, there's, there's just some things that, that, you know, you just look and, and kind of by nature we start to say, oh, I don't like that. And if we're not careful, we'll let that attitude grow and we'll literally nurture a fact of, I don't like them. I don't like that family's children. I don't like that group of children. That's a bad class of children. I don't like those children. And it's amazing to me how straightforward and detailed Jesus is when he says, I don't want you to not, I don't want you to despise children. Children are like adults. They're not perfect. But they deserve our love. And he gives three good reasons why we ought not despise them. Angels are constantly ministering to them before the face of the Father, and angels don't despise them. Why would we? The Son of Man came to die so that their sins could be saved, verse 11. And so if he did that, why would we despise them? And finally, at the end of the paragraph, he says, it's simply not the will of the Father. The Heavenly Father loves children. What does it say about me if angels, the Son, and the Father love children and I say I despise a child? That puts me in opposition to the greatest. And so it is. We think about who's the greatest and Jesus says, let me bring a child into the middle of this. And he teaches one of the greatest lessons. Invite children. Have that childlike heart. Don't ever do anything that would cause them to stumble. Don't ever despise them. We can learn from the angels. Let's minister to them. We could learn from Jesus. Let's make sure they're saved. We could learn from the Father. It ought to be our will that children are served. Preacher came home from a gospel meeting and someone said, How many responded? And he said, Two and a half. And they said, Oh, you mean two adults and a child? He said, Oh, no. I'm talking about two that still had all their life before them, two teenagers, and then one adult whose life was half over, two and a half. 
Friends, if you want to just drop back and look at the economy of the Lord's kingdom, the greatest investment we could ever make for long-term good is the value of a child. I'm not suggesting to you that God values any age over another age. But we are foolish if we don't see the wisdom in taking a child when they're young and helping them find their father so that they can touch as many lives as possible through their life on this earth. Vacation Bible School. It's a great time to invite some of the greatest children. It's a great time to invite some of the greatest adults that have a childlike heart of humility to help. It's a great time for us, not despise, but to love. Are you a child of God? The Lord wants to invite us into His family. If you've never become a child of God, as a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before men, will you be baptized into Christ this morning? And come out of that water, adopted into His family, a child of God. Maybe you've become a child of God, and somewhere along the way you've lost your way, you've left the family, and you want to come back to the Father. Confess sin and pray forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing. There's a mountain